Welcome to Pilot Boys episode 122. And uniquely, we're recording this on 2-22-22, which is also a Tuesday. So you know you got a good episode in front of you. Today, we are talking about some hip-hop news, the Genius documentary, a little bit of Kanye, uh, the All-Star Weekend, which just happened, the NBA 75 team, and uh, you know a few, a few more little choice news pieces. And uh, then we'll take a short break, and we'll be back for the deep dive which is about character and how it's not really about the virtues that you claim, but it's about the actions that you go through and how those define your principles. So stay tuned for that. Strap your seatbelts, put your tray tables up. The Pilot Boys are about to take off. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you will get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. What's up, V? 122. 22. 22. <laughs> 22-22. And it's 10-22 right now. Everything worked out. 12-22, 10-22 over there. Can't make that up. There's so many twos going on today. It looks like it's one of those days that we're supposed to have some great things happen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into these news and notes, some good topics we got cooking so uh let's start with kanye the genius documentary came out he's been in the news again obviously um i missed the documentary so far but i know you saw v why don't we start there yeah i mean thing about kanye and we've had this conversation a few times this week about um, sometimes taking your feelings about a person outside of your evaluation of their impact and their the inspirational value that they can provide um, for me, the Genius documentary was just a great path down memory lane because if anybody who was around or old enough when uh, College Dropout came out, it was a pretty revolutionary moment in hip hop for an artist to be able to rap about the things that Kanye was rapping about that could relate to a much wider population of people, specifically for me um, as a college student at that time. Um, for that album to come out and to have that type of platform. It, anybody who, who was introduced to Kanye during that time, it's been very challenging um, over the last few years. You're holding on to, onto that value that he provided for so many years and trying to discount all the stuff that goes on in the real world with social media, his antics, all that stuff. But the genius documentary, again, um, points back to the reason that Kanye is, is, looms as large as he as he does. For as many personality quirks as he might have, he is extremely brilliant. Um, just the fact that before he blew up, the type of confidence to have and belief in self, to not only take a new path, to be rejected over and over, his path to getting into being an artist was very difficult. People wanted him to stay a producer. Um, and then also the document, the 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 man who did the documentary to have the foresight to say, I know this guy is going to be something special. Let me document the journey to getting there um, was very trailblazing at the time that it was done um, and ruffled a lot of feathers. Like, what is this guy doing a documentary? Who is he? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's uh that's part of the, you know, the legendary confidence and, and, you know, storyline around Kanye. I think that's what 
makes him so iconic is just this this guy who's probably been one of the few people in media who's been able to retain this level of confidence over his career despite all the ups and downs he's gone through. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I've heard a lot of criticism of the documentary. People, it's virtue signaling saying, you know, you shouldn't watch it. You know, how are you supporting Kanye still? And it's like, there's value to be taken from that documentary. And there's value to be taken from Kanye. For anyone who's having trouble with confidence issues, you obviously don't need to mimic all of all of the uh, things that you don't like. But there's val- definitely value and inspiration to be taken from from his confidence, I think. Um, that type of level of confidence is is what's required when you're trying to bring something new or, or different into the world. Absolutely, um, those are my takeaways. My takeaways from it, and I don't think there's anything. If you're criticizing the documentary itself, your criticism is not based in the documentary. Your criticism is based on your personal opinion of Kanye West. You yeah. have to learn how to separate the two. Yeah, well said. And, uh, you know, speaking of another thing Kanye's got going on today, um, I'm not sure exactly when his Donda 2 album is coming out. Today was originally scheduled to be the day. And uh, he's doing something interesting with the release. He's releasing it not on streaming or anything right away, but through his stem player that he made for the Donda original release. So the stem player lets you play, for example, just the drums or just the vocals or just different parts of the song which is, I think, a, a cool way to let fans interact with music to begin with. Um, but it's also a very bold strategy because he definitely had to turn down different opportunities to go for it. And I think, um, I think it's unique, you know, to put people into a physical product ecosystem through your music that you can then launch other projects through. I mean, it's, it's a very unique idea. It is. It is. And, you know, his, his position... Um, has merit right um, he, he came out and he said artists are generally only getting 12 percent of the money that's being generated by streams and he's decided to take a stand here right and as with most things kanye there's some sense and then there's the other side of it right mm-hmm. the other side of it is that this is a self-perpetuating thing because you're not thinking about the consumers who want to digest your album and now can't digest it without spending $200 on your stem player in which all the revenue is going to you. Um, you are addressing the greed of record labels when it comes to artists, but you are not addressing uh, the impact that this is having on the people who want to consume your music who may or may not have $200 at their disposal and may or may not want a stem player, right? <laughs> so that's uh, that's kind of the catch-22 here. I do think the tech is brilliant. You know, I think it's pretty cool. As with most things with Kanye, he understands music. And to be able, anybody who enjoys music like and, and really digs into the music, to be able to sparse out all the stems and, and really study how a track is put together, that, that leans more toward not the casual music listener, listener, but more so people who are in the industry or pursuing musicians and people who are pursuing a career in music, right? Um, so that's kind of like where I look at this stem player. It's like on one hand, you're like, liberate the artist. But on the other hand, you're like, spend $200 of your money on me, on my product, so that I can make a bunch of money. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, ultimately, whenever you do something like this, you're limiting the release of the album too, right? So yeah. there's, there's going to be a lot less 
people buying it and listening to it. So, um, you know, who knows if the songs even have the opportunity to go as viral as they usually tend to, right? If they're not going to be on streaming, they're not going to be on TikTok, they're not going to be on Instagram, you know, so that's that's going to be the interesting part here. And I, I wonder how long it'll take before. I mean, I'm sure leaks are probably already out, but uh, just curious to see if he does end up releasing a streaming version in like two weeks with a deluxe, maybe um, to still be able to capitalize on the rest of the business model. He might, but he's really going. He's he's going to war with the streaming players right now. And he's and and on one hand, I like this. You know, as as a child of the Prince Michael Jackson era, we we were um, we understood artists who took control of their own business. And regardless, the fact that he did reportedly turn down a hundred million dollar offer from Apple to do this and bet on himself, bet on his tech, bet on his music is admirable, um, regardless of the selfish intent behind it. Um, I think I think as with most things, Kanye, he is he's trying his best to best to to do something positive. You know, I don't think there's like ill intent behind what he's doing but i just don't think that he's fully looking at this thing beyond just okay the industry is exploiting artists but you don't then go and exploit the consumer you know what i mean there's that that part of it is is missing but i think with things growing and changing you know you have to take stands like this and it's this is an iteration toward what he's trying to get to which is artists controlling their own distribution of their own music, which I think is an admirable thing. Yeah, I think it's cool, too. I think, you know, would that trend have continued? Would artists have started to build that control without, you know, Kanye doing this? I think absolutely. I don't know if this really makes any impact for artists, just given that independent labels are becoming the new trend. People are controlling their own music. And, you know, for um, this sort of play, I think, Kanye probably left some money on the table and that hundred million was going to go to him, right? It wasn't going to go to a label. So it was going to go, go to his label. So to me, I'm not sure if this necessarily makes the point he's trying to make, but in spirit, you know, I think it gets you the headlines, which will sell more of these units. And it launches the Kanye, the, the genius, whatever uses tech line right now is he can point to the fact that it's generated millions of dollars in revenue and, and validate yeah, um, continued investment. Job. Yeah. 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 There is that side of it. <laughs> so, you know, it's capitalism. We all have to remember that everybody operates in self-interest. It's just whether or not we evaluate this thing and say, this is pretty cool. You know what I mean? He's always yeah. trying to make it seem like this is, this is a purely selfless thing, but there's a, there are a lot of layers here uh, to evaluate. Yeah. <laughs> It is definitely cool. I think objectively, yeah. this the stem player is the cool. Device is cool as hell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, moving forward, the All Star Weekend just happened. Um, it was a pretty amazing All Star game, to be honest. On Sunday night, I had such a blast watching it. Um, there were so many amazing plays. It came down to the wire. Got to watch LeBron hit a nice game winner in Cleveland, which I haven't seen in a while. <laughs> um, so that was nice to see. And uh, you know the. Sunday, I think, made up for a lot of the, you know, boring elements of Saturday, which was pretty fairly criticized across the board. I think that the NBA struggles sometimes to find ways to appeal and connect with its fan base during these types of events. And I think it just goes to show that 
the NBA consumer versus the people who actually own the teams and are doing the programming, there's like a pretty strong um, gap there culturally between the two. And the strategy the NBA tries to take is, you know, essentially creating these propped up versions of what they think is culturally relevant to make it resonate. And I think there's this, what I'm calling out is this game show with Steph and Aisha Curry that they ran, which uh, the general fan sentiment was, what the hell is happening? Why is this even on TV? Yeah. Yeah. That's generally the way, I mean, nothing personal, but that's generally the way I feel anytime I see something related to Aisha Curry and not Steph Curry, because I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. So Steph Curry, greatest three-point shooter ever, greatest shooter in NBA history. Anything you want to do around him makes sense. About his wife, couldn't care less. Yes, yes. And speaking of that, you know, the All-Star Saturday night, the NBA needs to figure out how to incentivize the stars to participate um, in these in these three-point contests and dunk contests. Nobody wants to watch. You need to have at least a couple well-recognized stars. How do you get John Morant? in the dunk contest how do you get zion williamson how do you get lebron james how do you get the stars to actually participate in the saturday night events that's something that they need to figure out you know and then the game itself you know it's fun for the first three quarters it's just them not trying i usually tune into the fourth quarter but steph going back to steph to hit 16 three-pointers in a freaking game is pretty pretty wild well he was shooting lights out too he shot 60 percent from three yeah well deserved because he's been in the shooting slump i know nobody was really playing defense but still to hit 16 threes they played they played some d on him near the end too he was shooting from half court essentially yeah Yeah. crazy crazy performance crazy show just it was cool to see some of the younger guys too hold their own i was like especially impressed with darius garland and with Lamelo ball both yeah. of whom are younger guys. Um, Darius is balling out in Cleveland. Lamelo's down in Charlotte, and both really, really demonstrated that they're here to stay. Yeah, and it was nice to see CP3 um, come out and and play in the game, right? Yeah. Even though he's hurt, just knowing that these might be one of his last few All Stars to to go out there and give it a go was great. And obviously, the the highlight of the weekend for me was the 75th anniversary team, seeing all the different generations of players come together, um, the eras, you know, and just seeing the type of respect each generation had for the previous generation uh, of players and the impact that they had on helping them become great just goes to show you, like, the, the fraternity aspect of sports is something that's very special. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said, and, you know, um, looking at the NBA 75 team that they were able to roll out and seeing all of the legends on the court chatting with each other. And it was not only sentimental, but um, it also feels like we're at a punctuation point in NBA history where we're watching another generation of stars get ready to retire, move on. Um, new stars are stepping up into the main roles in terms of the narrative with the league. You saw even the current stars that they highlighted, Carl Anthony Towns, Luka Doncic, John Morant, and I can't remember who the fourth was, probably like Trey Young or something. Yeah. Um, but seeing like these, these new names, these new faces, uh, showed me that it's a totally different league and a totally different game than you know the league I grew up on. And uh, that's nice to see. Um, but I think 
there's also change when you get to these new generations and I'm not the target market anymore. And I can also feel that as well when it comes to the NBA's marketing. Yeah. Yeah. We will see where, where this goes, but I mean, there were the same challenges when Michael Jordan retired. That was a huge, that was probably the biggest punctuation point NBA history because nobody knew what would happen when you lose the game's biggest star. But then, there was there was a malaise for a little while. Then LeBron James came in, came in and and filled that gap. And and Kobe and Shaq and and these guys grew. And Tim Duncan they grew into superstars in their own right. And we're seeing that happen now with Giannis, Luca, Devin Booker. You know, I really really like these young stars, and it's actually bringing me back um, to the game because I think they really have brought back this competitive desire um, that I thought was missing in terms of we knew there was only two teams every year that could compete for a championship. Last season's playoffs were very competitive. Um, A lot of unexpected things happened. And I just like that when there's competitive balance throughout the league and you have new stars coming in saying, you know what, I'm not going to join you, Devin Booker. I'm going to beat you, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's a nice that that's a nice cultural change that we're undergoing. I think uh, even when we look at some of the stuff happening with um, trade culture these days, it's like the new generation. To your point, B, they they're good wherever they're drafted. They're good. They're like, yeah. cool. I'm gonna play here. And you know, I think there's there's still a few kind of prima donnas in the bunch, but there's a whole generation of now extremely hardworking players that just don't care about the limelight. They just want a ball. Yep. Yeah, really so, appreciate that. That's been awesome. Um, you know, one of the other basketball-related items that I, I think we just thought was really funny, uh, Joan Howard throwing a punch at uh, at the game this weekend. He he is the uh, coach of the basketball team up north, and uh, you know, just as a typical Michigan man would, he conducted himself poorly in a social situation <laughs> and embarrassed himself. Yeah, I mean, Juwan Howard is somebody we, we watched. This was kind of surprising, but he's had some issues since he's been at Michigan. And the problem that you have specifically here is that there's been a cultural shift. People are trying to point to the fact that, oh, Woody Hayes punched a player, but Woody Hayes, literally the, the greatest coach in Ohio State history, faced the consequence of losing his job as a result of punching that player. With Michigan, it seems like, whether it's the doctors who treat the, the, the athletes or whether it's the coaches who coach the teams, it seems like there are a different set of rules when it comes to their own that they don't project in terms of what they say a Michigan man is. And the truth is, when, I, when we look back at the reason behind why Jawan Howard threw this punch, yes, I know one of the other coaches put his hands on him, But as a coach, you have a higher degree of responsibility because you saw the fallout of once Jawan Howard threw that punch. Two of his young athletes on his team defended him and now are facing consequences because they threw punches. Because when you see your coach do it and you have to you have to act out of character in defense of your coach, that's a little that's 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 a little crazy. I know it was announced that he's suspended for the rest of the season, um, which is a good first step but i'm wondering would that have been the case if michigan was any good this year at basketball would he have really been suspended it seems like almost like a a hollow punishment 
It's like, take a break while your team sucks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly true. And I mean, I think it just goes to show like, this is, uh, you know, this is why Michigan has so much trouble being great as, as, you know, a sports program across the board is that they have these people that they put leadership positions. And if you're hiring Harbaugh's, you're hiring, you know, Juwan Howard's who want to punch their AD. Their AD just yeah is in is in major trouble, you know. And it the just, president of the university, the president of the university is under 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 some sexual harassment or some sort of issues going on. So it's like well said, and that that's how it goes. It goes right right from the top down, and uh, just just it, it's not a surprise to us knowing that we grew up in Ohio. We knew exactly what what uh, you know Michigan um, the Michigan man is like, and uh, you know having known some as an adult can confirm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I, I just do love to trash on Michigan um, oh, to yeah. wrap up our news and notes. Um, let's take a short break here and we will be back with a deep dive about character. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Hey, this is Partha. Not only am I a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. I started Lasso to help people improve their movement on a daily basis. We design and create compression apparel that enables you to move confidently, recover safely, and ultimately be the best version of yourself. We use a patented compression technology that activates key ligaments and tendons to help you improve your proprioception, coordination, and balance on a daily basis. Lasso socks were recently ranked number one by Men's Health because of how much they improve how your body works and the overall comfort, softness, and feel of the product. We're very proud of the Lasso socks, so check them out on our website at lassogear.com or at lassogear. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Awesome. Martha, this is this is a, a, a conversation as with most of our deep dives that come through conversations we have throughout the week leading up to it uh this one in particular uh i saw <laughs> one of the few michigan men that i actually care to like adam <laughs> grant uh had posted something related to our conversation and um his he summed it up very well where he said character is not a set of virtues to claim it's a set of principles to earn. So that is our deep dive topic. So let's get into it, man. Yeah, I'll put some some canvas here. We were talking about this around all the conflict that's happening in Ukraine, which, you know, obviously you've probably heard about if, if you're listening to this, the Canadian trucker protest that was going on the last couple of weeks. And essentially what we were talking about is the difference between, you know, what people say they believe, whether you're the leader of a nation or, you know, um, somebody who's, who's vocal um, about their belief set and then the actions that they actually go through. And uh, it's a pretty interesting, interesting concept because I think we all tend to feel that a lot of authority figures are, you know, really quality, at least in how they project themselves. And I think that's a trap that I fell into growing up. And it wasn't until I started to really get out here 
meet some folks and, and start to understand what's going on that I just saw the not only the humanity in in people in huge positions of power and authority, but I also started to see that they were far more flawed than anybody I knew that had done the basics growing up. And when I say do, done the basics, I think about in grade school when they say treat other people how you want to be treated and, you know, apologize and share and be kind to others and be inclusive of others and your group of friends so that they can play with you too. These are fundamental things you learn when you're six or seven. And these are things that our world politicians have not yet mastered. And we live in the consequences of that. But it's funny, right? That's what you're taught in school. But yet they set up a grading system in which the kids who, who get the higher grades are taught to feel like they're better than the kids who get the lower grades, right? The athletes who are better athletes are treated better than the guys just trying out for the team. It's like the empathy is like what it's like. It's, it's what we're talking about, the virtue signaling, right? We signal and communicate because it sounds good that this is the way that you should be. Be nice to others, you know, treat them with respect. But then we have a system in which everything, competition and, and stomping out people is what's actually rewarded <laughs> um, systematically, right? That's like the, 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 the yeah, term. I, and I think that's well said. I think it's like, obviously, we like to compete and have fun as individuals. But it's the way that you treat others as a result of that outcome. If you treat them any differently, then you're you're not really focusing on your character. And I think that's that's a great, great point to make. And it's not something that we think about a lot because in our society, it's like talking trash, triggering people. That's how you get clicks. That's how you get eyeballs. That's how you get noise. And we've gone so deep into this lane of wanting to make money like, I was talk I, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I was talking to somebody just the other day and they were like, Oh yeah, let's do this and this and this. Like I let's like, you know, let's do this together. And I was like, you know, like I'm just not interested in, in getting involved in that. And they were like, Why well, why are you not involved in like interested in getting involved? Like this could be a really profitable thing. And I was like, Because my life isn't about trying to take as much money for myself as I can. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I just don't understand why um, a lot of the values that we've built, I understand it, but I'm saying that kind of like emotionally, like it's tough to live in a world where the majority of decisions that people make are driven by their insecurities and their needs to feel a certain way. And so they use physical things, whether it's money, fame, whatever, to try and assert that they are a certain way instead of just being that way. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge, right? It's much easier to claim than it is to earn, and that's why I really like what Adam Brand said, that it's principles that you earn over time. You have to do the work. Yeah. Right? Like, none of us, it, there are a lot of factors that encourage us not to be morally the best, whether it's situational, whether it's, and what ends up happening is that we oftentimes don't analyze our own actions the same way that we analyze the actions of others. And it's easy over time to ignore your own flaws and your own mistakes and always see what other people are doing wrong because it makes you feel better, one. And then the second part of it is it's just, it's easier to digest um, because 
and then just claiming it. It's so easy to say you stand for something, you know, it's a lot harder to actually stand for it, which I think in this specific phase of our society, I feel like there's a lot of noise around people who want to claim, but they don't want to actually do the work that's required to take a stand to stand on those merits and move forward. And when we are talking about the, the Ukraine and, and Russia, it's, a, it's kind of a sad point in United States history because basically this is a threat to democracy, the concept of democracy that we've tried to push throughout the world since, since the, the, the end of the World War of World War II when the United States truly became the world's kind of dominant superpower. Uh, the USSR broke up, and the Ukraine is a shining example of even better than our democracy uh, in terms of their their elected president got 75% of the vote through a truly democratic process. Not 51% like most of our elections, but 75%. And now you have Russia coming in and saying, we're going to invade this democratic sovereign nation and the United States is taking the position where I think 30 years ago would have been in a much better position of strength um, to be able to say, if you invade, there are going to be real consequences. And it seems like in this situation, it's just like, hey, we just don't want you to invade. It's a bad idea. And it's a true, to me, it's a true, we're going through a process right now of um, a battle between the, the concept of authoritarian rule um, that I think Putin and China believe is the best way and many other kind of countries do. And this concept of democracy that's prevalent throughout, obviously, North America and the Europe, you know, European nations outside of the traditional kind of like USSR and, and China. And it's like, you say you stand for these principles as the United States, but they're being threatened over here and you're not really taking the stand to protect those principles and values that you claim are so important. Yeah, and I think you know the flip perspective on that as well is that enforcing your beliefs in another region of the world uh, would be seen as authoritarian. So there's the other side of it is that if you do launch a war for a non-allied country to enforce that they should, you know, have their rights, that exact set of actions is why we had al-qaeda it's why we had 9-11 it's why we have isis it's because we've attempted many 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 times over to have influence in areas of the world we don't have any business having influence in well i think this is a unique situation and my counter to that is this is that those countries had a different form of government this is actually what would be a merit merited war and this is what the hypocrisy shows right you'll go into iraq and afghanistan not because you're trying to establish democracy because you failed in doing that in a a meaningful way in each of those regions those those entrances were about resources and then two the consequences of doing so were marginal the reason that we don't invade north korea and we don't want to go to war with china or russia is because there are real consequences it's not about the principles. And then also in this specific situation with the Ukraine, the Ukraine is actually a democracy. They have left the USSR. And since that separated, 
have established a democracy, have been strong allies of both Europe and the United States and the region, and now they're facing an invasion, invasion based on nothing that's merited except for the same thing that the reasons we went into Iraq, which is Russia is trying to grow its power base. And- well, 100%. And I think there, there's, a, you know, there's an interesting line there because I think the, the one thing I would take issue with is that Ukraine has not been a strong ally of Europe and the U.S. in that they are not a member of NATO. They're not a member of the alliance in which you know, we, are, we got into after these world wars that we've had in the past. And so I think that's where the issue gets really interesting because it's not just about right and wrong, but you have to then start to analyze your actual enforcement of right or wrong, right or wrong around where do you have the authority to enforce it. And I think that's the question that's really compelling here is that it's not whether or not Ukraine is or is not going to be invaded or whether it's a net positive or net negative for the world if that happens or if Russia gains more power. That's not the real question here. The real question is, as the United States, is it worth us invading or getting involved in a non-allied nation just for the sake of preserving democracy, especially when we have such a huge issue financially back home and you have the resource complication where there's tremendous oil resources in the Ukraine that we are affiliated with. And we also know that our president, his son specifically, has financial ties to some of the largest gas companies in Ukraine. So the thing gets a lot more complicated than just whether or not democracy should be fought for. And I think that's where this becomes an interesting values conversation is like, what is the reason for moving that way? And to your point, V, is that actually the reason that we're going over there? Yeah. I mean, the the actual reason we're not going over there is this is Russia and we're scared of Russia. And the thing about power, and this is where I think it's a reflection on as a taxpayer, right? When you look at the United States budget, we are told that having the majority of our governmental budget be on defense and defense-related spending is justifiable because that's what we need to maintain our power base. But it's always curious as a taxpayer when you evaluate situations where you know, you have to see the long game. You know, Putin is playing the long game. China is playing the long game. And I wonder sometimes if the United States is still playing the long game or if we're just the reactionary um, and, and whether or not we are in the, in the face. And then these are obvious fears, and it happens throughout history, is, is, is this part of a long-term strategy to eventually undermine um, United States and its democracy? And then you counter that with, whether it's Republican or Democrat, justifying to us, the citizens, all of this defense-related spending, and you can't even be effective um, in, in, in wielding that power, whether it's in evaluating Afghanistan, Iraq, this Ukraine situation, North Korea. It's like, what, are we, what is all the spending for? Is it just what, what's, what's happening here with all this money? You know, I mean, agreed. And then the uh, the other thing that's really interesting about the scenario is that um, the main parties involved uh, from a from a uh, a country standpoint. So you're talking about, you know, say the UK, the US, a few other countries who would 
who would probably be involved if they need to be involved. The leaders that are the most vocal for getting involved in Ukraine also tend to have the lowest approval ratings right now. So there's this other side of it that war does stimulate economies and the U.S. economy is in dire need of stimulation. And war does increase approval ratings for president. So for a president in their first term, it can be very advantageous if you want to stay in your second, you want to maintain Congress control and all of these other pieces. And so I think that's where the entirety of um, this gets so convoluted and complex is that we find it as citizens very hard to understand why our politicians do what they do to your point B. And I think this is a, it's a moment in time that I think we all need to, you know, consider this issue of character. Do the people that we look up to or we defend or we debate about, do they have the character that, you know, would, would consider them worthy of defending their actions, consider them worthy of us defending their actions. Right. Yep. And then also as citizens, right? You know, I briefly want to touch on this, this Canadian trucker protest, right? Um, there is the spirit of freedom of speech and why it was written versus the execution of that freedom of speech and whether or not certain executions of it are justifiable. This is obviously a, a nuanced conversation because I looked at you know, I, I don't even really pay attention. I don't know why we care so much about what's happening in Canada. They don't care as much about what's happening over here. But this protest to me was one of those things that was asinine in its spirit. And this is why, right? None of the trucking unions who are, who the largest trucking unions in, in the country were in support of this protest. As a matter of fact, 90% of truckers in Canada have been vaccinated are not anti protocols this was done just because these people feel like they have the right to protest something and just because you have the right to protest something does not mean that it's a justifiable or meaningful protest and then when you look at the leaders of these protests they are people who are just trying to develop a power base in their own attention um, and that's the scary thing also from like the empowerment of people through social media is us having to filter through and, and, and try to value protests because there are meaningful protests still, meaningful things to take a stand for as citizens and then ones that are not worth the bandwidth as a society because you always have the question is we have bigger fish to fry. And I feel like a lot of the smaller fish to fry are becoming in getting such high volume of energy and noise around them that we're missing specifically as America. I feel like our government and our population, that's the reason why we're being threatened is because we're focused on all these marginal internal stupid issues. Um, and we're losing track of the bigger picture. I don't think that in the United States is as united as we were when we went into the Gulf war in 92. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think, you know, the narrative that, has sprung about racism, about inequality, I think is a big reason why, you know, we continue to stay divided because the more you point out to somebody, hey, you're racist, or this is racist, or this is sexist, or this is not fair, the more you divide. And I think, you know, if, if you're thinking of a takeaway from what's going on in the world here, the more you can make statements that bring people together, the better the world is. The more that you make statements that separate people, 
the more we are separated and the more we have to live with the consequences of that. And I think as an individual, it's like very well worth evaluating your speak to see if you are, you know, standing for unity or standing for division. And I agree with the principle and spirit of what you're saying, but the problem that we have in America is there's a population specifically of white America who refuses to do the self-work of actually acknowledging this, these problems would be solved because it's also about self-acknowledgement. Acknowledging instead of like, in, instead of displacing blame or saying, oh, that happened so long ago, living and accepting that this system was created and racism has existed in this country in many places for a number of years, actually accepting and acknowledging that, that allows the conversation to start. Well, right. the blame exists on all sides too. It's not just white Americans. There's racism amongst Black Americans toward white Americans. There's racism amongst Indians. I don't. Too. I don't think. I don't think that that's that's accurate because throughout history, speaking specifically of Amer in America, no other race has done what white America has done. I'm not, I'm not talking about degrees. I'm I, I'm. Purely it's not. It's not. It's not racism beliefs. to respond to oppression and, uh, and and racism through throughout history it's not it's not racism to respond to that because that's a psychological that's a result of the trauma that's a reactionary so thing. racism is discrimination directed against a person on the basis I'm not of talking about dictionary a particular me. race right so like i'm saying from a from a core point there are problems in all races in the majority all of the majority of racism in America is, is related to the history of white America. There's well, no in, doubt about that. In, in that way, you know, we'll agree to disagree. You know, all people racism have racism will not exist if it wasn't for white Americans. And, and people are going to be dis uncomfortable with me saying that. But that's part of the acknowledgement of how did this problem start? And if you first synthesize how a problem starts and, and the people who started the problem accept it, then the counter. And, I, and I'll say this throughout most most minorities in this country don't even have the time to invest in being racist. They've just got to figure out how to make a way. And, well, and, and you know, I think it's, it's interesting that you carry that view, V. And I mean, I think it's, you know, you're totally entitled to that opinion. I think, you know, from the standpoint history of history is history. The facts are the facts. Well, yeah. again, you're totally entitled to your opinion. And I think factually, you know, we all can, you know, look at the world a, a myriad of ways, but I think, the you know kind of the energy behind this deep dive is that it's not necessarily about blame it's not necessarily about what we feel is happening in the world it's about how do you treat people every single day do you treat people well do you show love to people do you give everyone the same benefit of the doubt across your life and if you're doing that you have character yeah the exact statement in this and this is why i'm making my point about the work that white America needs to do is this is saying character is not a set of virtues to claim. What I hear from white Americans in this country, same responses every time I have black friends. I, I'm not racist. I don't see color. These are statements that are exactly that first. It's not a set of virtues to claim. That's what they do. What they don't do is say, I'm going to do the work to not be racist. It's always displacing the blame because the history specifically in this country starts and stems from slavery. And so slavery was the white master subjugating and taking 
in removing identity from people. And that's not that far in history. We're only a couple generations removed from that. And there's a, there has been a set of even of principles that have led to a racist country. And you can point to redlining. These are all things that have happened that did not happen to white Americans. They only happened to minorities. The people who've been subjugated to institutional and racism in this country have been minorities. It hasn't been white Americans. They've never faced that. But now what they're doing is they're marginal. That's what they're doing is they're claiming all these virtues, but they haven't done the work to earn their principles. They'd rather. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll kind of take this out of, you know, personal beliefs and personal kind of. There's not personal. What is what is personal about the history oh, of this just, country just, being rooted in slavery? I, I think we're just kind of moving away from the core. Essence. I just want I want to tie in. Why is that a personal opinion? Is this country? I think not, I think it's just a limited view of human history. How, to is, last how, how is it a limited just, view? I'm, I'm just asking. I want to. I'm trying to get to understand your perspective on uh, just to just to evaluate humans based on the last, you know, however many hundreds of years when we've been around for tens of thousands of years. To me, is it's not a functional way to evaluate really what your body does, how to live to your highest potential and how to really live a happy and fulfilled life. I think uh, it it represents attachment to events and it affects your day to day actions in ways that you know, you may not even understand. And I think it's not functional to carry baggage in life. I don't think that that's, that's what's happening, right? To solve problems, you have to acknowledge problems. And in this country, we don't acknowledge our problems. Slavery is a, is a huge scar. Segregation was a huge scar. Jim Crow is a huge scar. Abortion, so our, our deep dive topic today is not solve slavery. It's about... Well, you started addressing... You, you, I just had to make sure that what you were talking about with with racism, I think when you talk about it and you say it's not just white Americans, the majority of the issues in race in this country have come as a result, especially even currently, have come as a result of white America's inability to accept minorities in a meaningful way as equals. If we, that had happened, there wouldn't be the counters and the issues um, that we have specifically in this country. And when you say it's 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 not useful to talk about that, it is useful when you're putting it into the context of this country and how do we move forward? Because when I look out in the landscape, I see a lot of angry people. When I look at look at angry white Americans, they're angry because they feel marginalized. And yeah, I mean, they, I, use, they, I they, so. they weaponize the fact that of this this sense of equality when your power structure is is responsible for it so take accountability for the fact that we have institutional problems with racism and and until that happens there's not going to be progress we're going to yeah. we're going to continue to sink back and this this is a funny area because this is an area where i think you know you and ivy are, are on complete opposite sides just in terms of how we see the human spirit and you know what it means to be a human but you know, just to kind of bring this to a button. Human here. beings, good people. Yeah, fundamentally. Yeah, the history of human of the this history of human culture. You you want to point back to ten thousand years? Do you think that it's been been that, or has it been yeah, just a I series of people? I don't know. A small group of people subjugating that 
the relative level of human, of human consciousness is rising every single year that we're alive right now. And it's been to much higher levels in the past. And so I think we are, you know, in a part of a cycle. And for that reason, it's, you know, very hard for me to blame people for being in the circumstance they're in, you know, during a particular lifetime. And so that's kind of the view that I approach it with, which is why for me, it's not about blame. It's not that people are right or wrong. It's just that the most important thing about navigating your life successfully and finding the freedom that this podcast is about within yourself is about understanding that what's happening in the world doesn't need to affect your mental state, your happiness or anything that you approach life with. And so and you can that, acknowledge the truth. This isn't something that so I, I mean, I think acknowledging truth also when you're going to go into details, we both grew up in a culture where it was not OK to even date outside of our race in our initial upbringing. I, I will make the assumption on your part, but I will say on mine. And, you know, there's a plenty of these other kinds of elements in all of our cultures. And there's, you know, racial intolerance in varying degrees in every culture in the world. And I think it's not about what happened in one country at a particular time and how that propagated to today. It's about understanding that all of us need to not look at each other based on the basis of our skin, but we need to look at each other as souls living a human experience. And we need to treat each other with the same kind of love we want to be treated with. Yeah. And I think that's a very idealistic way to look at things. And I think it's the proper way. If you if that's the spirit in which I generally look at people, but I don't, think and this is kind of where i think i don't think we necessarily differ but i think where i'm at is there's a difference i can't control someone's personal choice to dislike me but what i can't have is an institutional situation like for example something like redlining which you know i can't believe things like that were created um redlining is an example when it's something that's institutional that actually prevents other people from progressing is much different than someone's personal viewpoint if somebody if i if i meet a guy who says i don't like you because you're indian that doesn't bother me right because that's their personal choice but what we need to address is systemic and institutional rules and guidelines that have led to an unequal playing field that we quite frankly haven't been able to fix and the fix is always when we try to fix it it's a lack of acknowledgement of what the issue is itself and that's my point this isn't a race thing this is a specific group in america having institutional support um that others don't yeah i mean i again i think i think you know it maybe there are perspectives in which you know that that would ring true i think uh, you know, where I would point is this passage from the Tao Te Ching, which is that um, it's a uh, yeah, chapter, I believe, chapter 50. Uh, we go from birth to death. Three out of 10 follow life. Three out of 10 follow death. People who rush from birth to death are also three out of 10. Why is that so? Because they want to make too much of life. I've heard that one who knows how to live can wander through the land without encountering the rhinoceros or the tiger. He passes the battlefield without being struck by weapons. In him, the rhinoceros finds no opening for its horn. The tiger finds no opening for its claws. The soldiers find no opening for their blades. Why is that so? Death has no place in him. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading the quote because I think when it comes to these issues of race, of uh, unfairness, of pain, of all of the suffering that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis, we have to at some point understand that these things all come from within our own minds, whether it's 
your you know fear of racism, your frustration with the world, or frustration about people that do things differently from how you would have done them, if that is in your mind, you are creating your mm -hmm. own suffering. And you know, to me, the important thing about all of these issues is not what is or isn't, because things will never be fair as much as we want them to be. But it's about understanding that there is a progression of events that we are a part of. And what we can do is we can make our experience extremely blissful and positive. And, you know, mm -hmm. that to me is, is the real core push I have when it comes to these types of events is that it doesn't serve anyone. You know, I, I had to examine myself because I was feeling particularly triggered about the trucker incident last week because I felt that it wasn't, it wasn't fair the way that they were arrested and their bank accounts were frozen where they couldn't even pay their bail. Um, because they chose to voice an unpopular sentiment. And that was something I struggled with. But I realized that because I had, I had ascribed a moral judgment to it, I felt that it wasn't fair. As a result, I created a, a suffering within myself. I was, I was bothered by it, and I was bothered by it for a few days, and I didn't understand why I was bothered by it. It was only after a few days of reflection that I realized that the entire problem itself was essentially pointless. Like at this point, I'm advocating more of a stoic philosophy in that things happen. That is the world that we live in. If we ascribe good and bad, then we're only creating polarization within ourselves. We just have to accept things, people, everything as they are, give them absolute love and then live from there. And it's a more peaceful life. It is. It is. But I think if you want to solve problems for me, I don't spend as much time on these issues that I don't think can be solved. I don't think racism is an issue in this country that can be solved or throughout the world because it's so institutionalized and it's so historic. But what I can do is if somebody wants to have a conversation about the problem, I am going to be forceful in making sure to synthesize and solve any problem, whether it's race, whether it's, you know, financial discrimination there are many forms sexual discrimination you sent you have to synthesize the history of the problem and say where's the what is the root cause and i think with racism specifically the reason that i put so much accountability on white america is not because i'm so outraged anymore it's because i just don't feel like what i feel like a big part of what's holding us back for progressing on race in america is the unwillingness to truly acknowledge the issues that have created the system that that's in place and this isn't all white people they weren't in power they weren't the leaders who controlled all of this and some of them many of them have been marginalized psychologically as a result of this too so this isn't like oh i you know white americans are are, are, are horrible but for us to solve the problem if we want to solve the problem we have to acknowledge these root causes say that's pretty fucked up and I don't think that that's happening because it's really hard to internalize when something or someone we're affiliated with, and you brought up our family and our cultures, it's true. It's, it's, you find that it's a lot harder when it's something internal to you to, to evaluate yourself and say, you know what, some of my troubling views might be coming from displacement of blame or lack of accountability or some, some things like that. And it's within race specifically in this country, that's the only point that I make. I have, you know, to, to use their statement, I have plenty of, I have white friends, 
you know, so well, we have I, these conversations and I they're spirited conversations. I, as always. we look at it too, there's the difference between what is observable in this world and then what is beneath that. And it determines if you want to take a literal view of the world or a spiritual view of the world. And that's also where there's differentiation here because my view is always going to be the spiritual one. And uh, that's just how I see the world. And so when we talk about things like race, if there's a single conclusion drawn from something that's measurable, I believe it to be false because I, I believe in a reality that's greater than what is measurable. And the measurable is a symptom of the greater reality. Mm -hmm. So when we look at things like race, if we see all of these events within you know, a particular group's hearts or if we see a certain thing that has unfolded throughout history, it's not about the skin color of those people, why that happened. They're just a representation of the people we voted to put in power to make the rules. So that means that all of the people we voted for are really just a representation of ourselves. Like the world really truly is a mirror. And I think that to me is like the real fundamental truth of, of all of life is that whenever you see something externally that bothers you, usually it's a problem that you carry in your heart as well. That you need to grow out of and evolve from. There's no, no person I've ever met who has pointed ill at somebody else did not have that same flaw within themselves. And I think that's, that's an important takeaway for me when we talk about these issues is that it's not about the facts. It's about why are we so emotionally charged about the facts? Why do we even feel strongly about things that aren't happening this instant? And if you think about things again from that spiritual or even from a physics point of view, past is actually not existent. There is no way to go to the past. There are things that happen in the present moment. There are many present moments that have already occurred. So mm -hmm. if we're upset about a present moment that's already occurred, it's also a moment we have no influence over. And we do have full influence over this moment and every decision we make in this instant. And to me, like that, that is where things get really powerful when you start to think about, you know, anything in the realm of is life fair? How do we make things better for everybody around here? It's like, it's not about looking at history and trying to correct history. It's about looking at the ways in which we've wronged each other, examining ourselves, and then trying to act better in this moment toward the other person based on what we've previously observed. I think the factual and the, the focus on the factual is it's very Western in terms of how we like to observe things even our scientific analysis our our historical analysis is very we're very measured and i think that that has had strengths in some cases but i think when it comes to the issue of personal happiness it's it cannot be approached rationally i think it, it must be approached in a spiritual mm -hmm. emotional context the, the the last thing that i will say on this and you know there's a difference, I think, sometimes people attribute emotions to force and confidence to actually address if you are confident in what a problem is and what the root cause of a problem is, you must be forceful in, in pointing out what that problem is. And I know my statements are going to make some of our listeners uncomfortable and sometimes make some of our friends uncomfortable, but it is a forceful, it's forceful because I've done the work, right? not just making these statements i've done the work i've studied history i've come to a pretty confident conclusion of why the problems here exist i've been to other countries and there are problems of oppression they take a different form than they do in the united states but because i am a citizen of the united states i have to evaluate and say if we 
there's two options when it comes to things like major issues like race. One is, are we going to just focus on our own lives and making sure that we are the best people but that we want to be? Or two, do we have a societal responsibility to try to push the conversation forward? And I feel like we're at a flashpoint in American history in which the progression that has been being made since slavery is 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 regressing. And the reason that I want to hold white America accountable specifically around the idea of critical race theory, the fact that you're so fearful to learn a different perspective on the same history and think that it's it's unfair to you shows me that there's still a lot of work internally that that they need to do for us to move forward as a society because they still are the majority of the population here. I, I think, you know, another takeaway um, that I think is valuable is that V and I clearly differ extremely strongly here, but it's, we're still boys. We're still going to hop yeah. off this and hang exactly. out. I think that's the other, you know, really important thing about these conversations is that it, whatever you're feeling, just remember that it's not about what you feel and what upsets you, but it's more about having conversations and connecting with people on a human level, understanding that their worldview and their experience is a function of, or their worldview is a function of their experiences, what they've yep. lived through. And so, you know, that's powerful here. And I think, I think this is, you know, this may be a good time for us to, uh, to close. Um, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, the major takeaway that, that, um, you know, I hope, I hope you get from this as a listener is that, there's no right or wrong. Like you're whatever you feel, however you see the world's totally valid. Like no one's no one's gonna tell you that. I'm not gonna tell V that I think he's wrong. I I just see things differently than him. Yeah, it's a di we have different perspectives. You know, and we have different life experiences. And it's and, valuable to leverage, like we've talked about before, your different perspective for the unique things you're gonna be able to bring to the table, whether it's professionally or personally. Yeah. Yep. And I think also the last the last very last thing I'll say is don't be afraid to voice your opinions because you think they're going to make people uncomfortable. I know the statements that I made are going to make some people within my social circle uncomfortable, but there's growth that comes from discomfort. Don't be don't bite your tongue because you're fearful to express your truth or your honest opinion. If you are if you do hold racial prejudice be honest with that you know and express it because that's the only way i can have a conversation with you and counter it i don't want to deal with the fact that you're not being honest about that to me instead hiding it you know what i mean um and 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 that's that's as far as as race goes but just generally when it comes to your values you know work on them internally and express them to the world versus worrying about and building your opinions based on all the other opinions that are being fed to you actually do the work to say i am an individual and i am going to build my opinions out based on my own examination and my own process of situations I think and as long as that's true right. then yeah. whether someone agrees or disagrees with you you can go to sleep at night peaceful like i can go to sleep at night peacefully with my position on on race because I think it's valid and I think it's true and it's not coming from a place of anger. It's coming from a place of what I feel is like an honest solution to this problem. For sure. And I think, you know, at that point when you get, I think that's a really great point. When you, when you find that place within yourself, then 
Kyrie doesn't make you upset. You know That's what I mean? Exactly. Like, Mask, exactly. mask mandate protesters don't make you upset like it's just people feeling like this is their truth and that's fine that's what we're the, about the you can't control the effects right like you you might it might may be a negative effect for you as a result of their position but that's just you being selfish yeah right <laughs> Every, everyone you know has has to to this point form their own worldview and yep. really yep. Test it rigorously. Question it. Question it, it. Test it. Challenge. Don't be afraid to be challenged. You know. Don't be afraid of the smoke, as they like to say. You yeah. know. And just and just live your truth. As long as you're not, it's not coming from a place of ill intent. You should be able to have these conversations with people and say, "Hey, I have an issue. This is my issue." You know what I mean? Well said. And on that note, by the boys, one twenty-two, two twenty-two, twenty-two on Tuesday has just wrapped almost at 11.22. Thank you guys for listening. This was a fun one. Um, tweet us. Write us what you think about anything we talked about. I'm especially curious about what people feel about uh, the idea of constructing your worldview and uh, whether there is a right worldview that you, you think exists. And if so, what is it? On that note, stay moving. Pilot Boys out.